The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. And I'm Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. We're excited to have Leah DeBello on today. Leah is the CEO and Chief Scientist at Applied Cognitive Sciences Labs. She has developed many innovative methods of assessing skill and business judgment among executives and is perhaps best known for the development of a particular kind of activity-based strategic rehearsal approach that has been shown to greatly accelerate learning through cognitive reorganization. She is the innovator behind the FutureView Profiler, which has been recognized as a theoretical and methodological breakthrough in knowledge elicitation and executive intelligence. And she is also well known for her work in virtual world development projects that link advanced technology to virtual worlds for the purposes of business performance improvement and increased cognitive agility. In addition to her applied work in industry, Dr. DeBella has authored numerous journal articles, book chapters and presentations, and as a visiting professor, has taught several courses on the development of expertise, technology deployment and design, and accelerated organizational change. Dr. DeBella received her PhD in Cognitive Psychology from CUNY Graduate School in New York. Welcome, Leah, and thank you for joining us. So we usually like to start out uh, to sort of get a handle on how NDM practitioners came to discover the field and the community. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us back through your path. How did you sort of get involved in the NDM field? Well, um, my mentor was Sylvia Scribner, who was a pioneer in workplace co- cognition. Um, she brought Vygotsky and theory, along with uh, Vera John Steiner and Lauren Resnick uh, and Mike Cole, to the United States probably in the 80s. Um, she was not part of the NDM community, but she shared many of the same methods, such as her approach to field work uh, and her whole idea that people's uh, way of thinking and their cognitive models were shaped by the work that they did and the environments that they were in. And that, that's also influenced by the, um, the Vygotsky uh, framework. Um, so, and, and because of that, her methods of um, understanding how people think were very akin to the knowledge elicitation methods that we use. Um, and she also had an implicit uh, understanding that people in general are experts as a function of the kind of work they do and that their expertise is shaped by their environment and the kind of work they do. So Laura, for example, the work that you did with uh, nurses, she would be, that would, that would be very similar to what she did with dairy workers. She also had, we also had many colleagues in common. Um, such as uh, people at the University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, MIT, and so on. So there were lots of times that when I was working for her, we crossed paths. Right. So I, I kind of have a similar experience in sort of coming from a different uh, but very related, uh, you know, community of uh, scholarly community. So symbolic interactionism is something that I've been interested in for a long time and, and also see a lot of... Uh, overlaps there. I'm kind of wondering, what was your experience early on in trying to, if, if, if you did, try to get sort of NDM practitioners to pay attention to this other stuff and vice versa? 
Did you sort of feel like you were between those communities? No, not really. I think it was more organic. Um, I, I don't, you know, when the last time I saw Gary Klein at the conference in uh, San Francisco, we were sitting there realizing we'd known each other probably since the early 80s and we couldn't remember how we met. Um, and it's, it really was that organic. So uh, we just, uh, I don't think I was trying to get their attention. I think I was just trying to get my work done. Um, and we just kind of fell in each other's laps. Well, I do remember how I met you. Uh, and in fact, you are responsible for, for enabling me to have the very first project that I ever led at Klein Associates, which was the, uh, the school bus project for the uh, transportation folks, oh. uh, which, which as I understood the backstory, uh, we were sort of brought that project to Klein after it, uh, it hadn't gone well otherwise. But um, I always, uh, always look back on that as, uh, as the big, a uh, favor that you did for me in my career. So I'll take this chance, I'll take this chance to thank you on that. Um, oh, well, thank you. Uh, right. So, so again, just to get back to this idea. So, so the, the organic nature. So, so tell me sort of how that develops. Yeah. I mean, I, I have always done research since I was 19. So after I went to college, I um, moved to Boston because my boyfriend at the time was a professor at Brandeis. And um, I, I was bored. I had a really good job, and I quit to go work for Dr. Christine Chris at Harvard, who was working with brain-damaged people. And I was re really fascinated by the broken brain at the time. And um, we actually did a lot of knowledge elicitation types of things with the, the uh, patients because they many of them could no longer speak of their brain damage. And I was very fascinated by how you could understand an operating mental model by watching people's behavior. And Dr. Chris was very much an intuitive cognitive scientist before there was any methods of looking at the brain uh, that weren't modern. You know, this was the 70s, actually, when I did this work. And um, the so because I was you know, I just had a bachelor's degree. I was always reading and always calling people up after I read their books and saying, can I just come and meet you? How I met Sylvia was I read her book. I got in my old Dodge Dart and drove, drove to New York. And I was always just doing that. I ended up working at IBM uh, Cognitive Sciences Labs very much the same way. I met somebody at a fundraiser who said, you really should be working at the Cognitive Sciences Labs. And I said, well, um, I'm starting at CUNY Graduate School this fall. And she said, well, move here to New York now. We'll get you a job. And we'll start. you'll start meeting people and working in the field. And that's when I was studying computer programmers and physicists, making the transition from linear to object-oriented programming. I just would network and call people up and be a pest. And that's probably how I met Gary. Um, so I was just that way. And I would also connect other people to each other. And that's probably, Brian, how you got that project. I was <laughs> just always, you know, saying, who can I get to help and who can I help? Right. Well, it sounds like just the guidance for younger younger researchers to to not be idle and, and to reach out and sort of find your way is uh 
is good guidance, and it sounds like it worked out well for you. But it does take a, it does take a, I guess, a certain kind of person who's sort of not afraid to reach out and be rejected and that sort of thing. Did you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you see any rejection? Oh, probably. <laughs> I mean, did I notice it? Maybe not. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, um, I do come from, uh, you know, I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. Um, my grandmothers were both college educated, even though they were born in the 1800s. And, um, you know, we, we did not have gender normal uh, ways of being raised. So I, I think I was just always encouraged to follow my path mm-hmm. and uh i think i just uh just tried just got back on the horse i didn't worry about it yeah. is the point so, so so the comments about doing knowledge elicitation with um uh with the patients is interesting i mean you're, you're pretty well known for generating and testing out new methods mm-hmm. um and so i'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through what sparked the development of future view profiler and the strategic rehearsal and, uh, and also, do you, do you have kind of a particular method you use for developing new methods? Well, I always start with the question um, uh, in my mind, what's it like to be you? Um, so when I'm looking at a person that I'm trying to understand their operating mental model, I, I think, what would it like, you know, what, what is their world like? How can I get in their head? And I, I got to give Robert Hoffman some credit here. He said that what I do is, or, and what my team does is we're, we're expert apprentices. And what we do is we go in into an environment and we say to ourselves, if we had to learn this job and we were the learners from these people, how would we have to position ourselves in relationship to them that we would, um, understand how they understand the world. What questions would we ask? How would we observe them? And it's always a kind of subordinate learning position. Um, and this is how I did my field work for my dissertation. I actually worked in the air brake shop as an apprentice. And um, the it, it's very valuable to, to do that. So you're not walking around with a clipboard I think they thought I was probably a community college student taking a course. Um, and they, I said, you know, you really have to help me understand how you do this amazing thing of lapping, uh, uh, you know, cast iron valves with an airtight. Because there's no rubber, there's no seal. And, you know, they say, well, you just read the book and, you know, you just follow the manual. And I said, but you don't do that. You know, tell me what it, tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you see here. Like, I, you know, I would act like I had to do this job. And, of course, they thought I was unqualified to ever have a job. They felt sorry for me. So they, they would be very patient, and they'd say, well, you know, we imagine we are the air. And we tighten the, the screws and the valves, and we imagine our, ourselves as the air um, until we know that we can't escape. And I thought that was amazing. And, uh, of course, I never did get my valves to be airtight. But the point is that I realized that's the only way to develop a knowledge elicitation instrument, is to get that, to get at that. And then over the years, obviously, you know, you can't be an apprentice to everybody. 
but you can do equivalent things. You can find out what is it that they do that's different or how, what, what set of materials would elicit their worldview. So the profiler, which we use to um, characterize the, 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 the mental model of very senior, very talented experts in business, is a set of materials that we know that people like a Warren Buffett or some very skilled senior leader who's a success, regardless of market conditions, kind of like a chess master of business, um, would see something very different in this set of materials. We don't even know what they see, but we know that this set does it. And we know the answer because we find out the answer before we give them the materials. And we see if they see the answer. And so we've, we've developed a number of materials like that. Um, we can tell if a person is an expert because they see in that material what uh, an expert would see. How they do it, we may not know, but we know that they that they can they can follow the, the maze. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and and for the strategic rehearsal approach. Well, the strategic rehearsal is is very different and and very complicated. It's really something that's developed over twenty years, and I I think it's very simple. But so many people have tried to steal it, even with our help, and failed. That we now know it's more complicated than we think. What it is, is a very simple idea that business is a lot like other bounded domains. It's like chess, right? 64 squares, uh, 32 pieces. And, uh, you know, some people are masters at it. Some people are less good at it. But it's a bounded domain. And people are very good at it who are understand. It, but instead of having four corners to the, to the board, there's three capital, supply, and demand. What happens in business is when one of those corners changes, all the other corners change too. And people who are experts in business understand when something has changed in one of the corners and they can adjust their strategy for the other corners. Of course, there's a million pieces on the board between the three corners. And they can forward simulate in their minds what has to change on the board once something major has changed, like with the economy, which is the capital corner. So that will affect the markets and the supply chain dynamics. Or maybe China is not supplying us anymore. So that will completely change your supply chain strategy. What people who are more... Um, at the journeyman level of expertise, what they are is they're more proficient at one or two of the corners, but not all of the corners, and not the whole uh, game. So strategic rehearsals allow people to play the whole game and play the whole game in their industry and become more of an intuitive expert at um, the whole game, which you know can take many, 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 many years and many expensive trial and error failure cycles. So what we've done to make companies much more successful is we've given them the opportunity to play out 10 to 20 years of failure cycles. 
So they don't have to do that in real life. And for mining, um, where a failure cycle can cost you a couple billion dollars, in a strategic rehearsal in a virtual world, it can cost, you know, a couple hundred thousand to a million, and you save a huge amount of money, and you, you don't make those mistakes. And yet, as the strategic rehearsal has gotten much more complicated in a, in a virtual world platform, where we can actually replicate a world economy and create major events like the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008 or even future crises that haven't happened yet, they can learn how their, their whole game board has to adjust if one of the corners goes into crisis. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Um, and I can appreciate your notion earlier of, of you think it's easy, but uh, others have <laughs> kind of struggled to replicate it. So it actually sounds <laughs> pretty straightforward as you describe it, but I imagine once you get in there and all those pieces start taking shape that uh, it's it can get overwhelming. Well, it's not hard to play. It's probably hard to design. It's taken us 20 years to design it and put it into a technology platform. Um, but but our customers, when they're in there, they feel like they're, they're living their own business. Um, and that's the point. Because, because they're already experts in their business, they feel like they're home in a way. But being able to replicate the environment is what is hard. Yeah, so this, um, this is, is really fascinating work. I wanted to shift a little bit. So in addition to your work developing methods, and creating training, you've also provided some really nice empirical evidence about what works and what doesn't in terms of accelerating the acquisition of expertise. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the strategies you use to measure the impact of your training. How do you know it's working? That, that's an interesting story. Um, the it, It's kind of an accident. Um, when we were, um, when I was an intern at IBM, uh, we, I worked with some Piagetians applying genetic epistemology to the development of expertise. And I noticed that those who were good at linear programming were better programmers if they could be converted to object-oriented programming. From a purely Piagetian point of view, which is a kind of bottom-up um, development model, that should not happen. It, the people who don't have... Um, programming experience should do better. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, so then I, I stopped working at IBM and I went to graduate school. And I realized that the real question was how technology was changing work and requiring new cognitive models by reorganizing what people already have. And in order to explore that in a broad way, we had to study the impact of technology on business cognition. Of course, Sylvia Scribner loved that, <clears throat> but she had not really uh, done it. And she, you know, she looked at how um, literacy had affected people in Africa and so on, and how uh, people, uh, the constraints of work had affected people in a dairy study. But the idea of a constantly changing, complex technology entering the workplace was something that she wanted studied, but she didn't want it uh, to do it, but she wanted it done in her lab. Because I had a 
a, a pretty strong business background coming from a business family. Um, she, you know, tag your it, right? So um, I realized that <clears throat> the best way to study this was to study it in businesses, in situ. And, but I also realized coming from a business family that um, you're not going to get to do this unless you um, produce a result. They're just not going to let you in. And this was the advantage I had. Um, you know, a lot of professors tried to do studies in businesses and they were tolerated and then usually thrown out because they were in the way. And I was able to get in and stay in. And that was because I would say, um, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll figure out what your people need to be able to do for your, your organization to be successful or to solve a problem that you need solving. And I can figure out what that problem is because I had some insight into that. And then in exchange for that, I got subjects for my studies. So. The first time I did this, um, <clears throat> I implemented um, an ERP system for the air brake shop for New York City Transit. And um, I wanted to try doing, you know, using a, what's now called a strategic rehearsal to see if I could reorganize the mental models of um, the, the workers in the air brake shop. And, um, I knew that they needed to clean up their supply chain. And um, so it did work. And I did my card sorts and I, I was able to track the shift in their, um, their conceptual models. And, you know, there's a whole dissertation and a paper in the International Journal of Artificial Intelligence written about what changed in them. But this is a, the air brake shop is something that New York City Transit had had for 70 years. Um, so we knew, you know, what their performance levels were. And we knew that the, the sort of minor crisis there was that air brakes were no longer being made and that the air brake shop needed to remanufacture the air brakes that existed out there in the world already until the new trains arrived. So it could be a five or six year waiting period. And that's a common thing. Remanufacturing um, is, a re is, a, is a common issue when you've got equipment in place uh, and you're waiting for um, an upgrade in a major, you know, there's a major evolution in equipment. So we see this in power generation turbines. We see this in railroads. Etc. I won't bore you with the details, but it was a it was an issue with rail. Um, so I said, well, this is a good place to start. So um, I got my data and I went away. About an, about six months later, I got a call from the president of New York City Transit, and he said, my air brake shop is now a profit center for uh, for all of Northeast United States. We're remanufacturing all of the air brakes for all of the railroads. Can you come back and do this for 3,000 more people? Because the shipment of the new fleet is delayed by a couple of years, and I need you to do the same thing for the entire fleet of buses. Wow. <laughs> for a first project, that's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, and I had just gotten a job at UCSD teaching. And I said, you know what? Let's make it work. Let's figure it out. So I did both. And um, I hired a bunch of people, and I, I trained them how to do it on three shifts. And he said, and oh, by the way, I, I've got to get this done in less than a year. I said, no problem. We'll figure it out. Now, because I knew I had to say yes to doing it under a year, because I understand how business works, I was able to get the gig, and I knew how to figure out how to get it done in less than a year. Um, I got the data from 3,000 people, and I said, in exchange for that, I need all the logs from all the technologies of every worker to analyze it for patterns to see if they're using the technology differently. He said, no problem. <laughs> so that's an important strategy, but I want to go a little deeper or ask a little different question. So I think um, measuring the impact of training is really hard, knowing what to look for. So you're saying you're looking for patterns. You're curious about whether they're using the technology. Um, some people focus on are people making more errors or fewer errors. Um, but figuring out what to measure and how that's going to be meaningful and tell you something about whether you're really accelerating expertise or not, um, that's a challenge, too. Do you have any observations about that? Like, Well, yeah, I mean, that's why it's, it's – that's why it's probably good that I'm only working in business because I do understand business really well. Um, and I don't think I could do it for nursing, for example. I wouldn't know what to look for. Um, I would know that you have to know what to look for. Um, but I do know that, that, you know, in fact, we were just on a call with a company and there's seven indicators of the health of the company that we look at. And we know the needle has to move on those seven things. And we know that we have to move the needle on those seven things or expertise is not being developed, for example, right? So over the years, we have figured out that, um, that what are the indicators of expertise and, and, and what are they at each level? Um, so we look at those things. Now, how we accelerate expertise is we think that we give, we give people, I think expertise is actually an adaptive response to an environmental pressure. I believe there's a kind of cognitive Darwinism that takes place. And this is where, how I'm influenced completely by Sylvia Spritner. She believed that um, cognition is developed in response to a goal. Um, where people realize that in order to be successful in an environment, you know, in other words, survive, they have to do something to be either part a, a successful part of a group, or they have to do something that contributes to their survival if they live in the African bush or whatever, and that they automatically um, develop skills for that purpose. So people in so-called preliterate societies develop extraordinary memories because they can't write anything down. Um, people who uh, work in factories where they're paid by the piece develop extraordinary implicit mathematical abilities because they have to get a lot done in a short amount of time, etc. And she kind of proved that. So what we do 
is we set a, a, a very clear and visible goal that defines expertise and we give people at least um, you know a certain number of cycles in compressed time and uh, we see how they do on the indicators that we think uh, would would be characteristic of an expert after going through many uh, cycles and we think that trial and error compressed time is what develops expertise. Okay, so I'm just going to try to restate that a little bit. So it sounds like um, the challenges of whatever this job is, a part of what you're doing is trying Mm -hmm. to understand what are those challenges and what kind of expertise are people developing in response to that. And then that's what you're looking for when you're looking for changes. Yeah, yeah. So so when we develop expertise, all we do is take all the... challenges that would develop an expert over <clears throat> 10 years or something like that. And we compress them into a couple of weeks. It's like almost a horrible experience, actually. It's, it's a very intense strategic rehearsal. But it's, there's no risk to it because you're at, you know, your, your, your company crashes and burns a few times in a strategic rehearsal. In, in real life, it would be terrible what's happening. But um, it doesn't happen in real life, and that's the point. Um, but you do learn as if it happened in real life because it feels very real if you right, design it properly. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. And, uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say, and I can imagine no, that these um, uh, business leaders, even in this simulated environment, they don't want to crash and burn. Like they are invested. They are pretty upset. In fact, yeah, no. In fact, we tell them in the beginning. This, this may be the worst day of your life, but you will be fine. It will be okay. Everybody comes back out of this. Um, you know, this is your unlearning stage. This is where we're tearing you down. Um, and we do believe that you have to fail in order to be, um, and this is, the, I guess, the Piagetian part of it, in order for these default schemas to be loosened, so that you can be open to something else, and for your uh, to to uh, be open to new options and to explore new options, uh, we need to really uh, exercise all the things that you might do by default and have it fail. And I think there's something neurophysiological that goes on because I've done this now with more than 7,500 people. Every single person replicates their failure patterns the first time they go through our exercises and they can't stop they are on autopilot losing money making mistakes handle the fist yeah we worked with a financial services company in europe that had had imploded after the subprime mortgage crisis they imploded again 70 phds in math imploded again the same way made the same mistake and they were very depressed at the end of the day looking at the data and I said tomorrow when you come back and do this again and the exercise will be even harder uh, you won't make the same mistake again that that pattern is gone and it was and they came up with a very different solution and within um, less than a year they doubled their stock price and market cap with the new approach. So Lee, you've mentioned, you've used the term reorganize their mental models. And then just a moment ago, you mentioned these default schemas. I'm, I'm curious, do, do you uh, 
apart from their performance, is there an attempt at all to articulate sort of their initial mental models? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's what the profiler does. The profiler actually creates a heat map of their dominant um, schemas and their blind spots. So let's go back to that chessboard, the, th the three-sided chessboard. We can actually see where their blind spots are, what they're, what they're not seeing. So we give them a problem where they would, they would go back to Gary's uh, recognition prime decision model. We put the clues for the answer to the mystery in the, in the material. And um, so they could solve the problem. And we see what, what they what they use to solve the problem, and uh, in, inevitably they have a bias. So a lot of senior leaders will only look at the capital data, and they won't look at the market data, for example. And maybe the market data would tell them that um, that they're they're making the wrong decision. So the heat map would have a black would be blacked out there. And we can tell that they have a bias that's preventing them from being successful. So we do that kind gotcha. of Gotcha. So you're el eliciting that yep. profile yeah. through sort of an initial activity of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And after the strategic rehearsal, that profile would be very, would be more balanced. So that's a, a different spin on elicitation because you're actually having them rather than trying to sort of draw that out of them through an interview process or even observation, you're having them actually do the task against which you've already determined what an expert model would be. That's right. It's, it's, it's kind of like we have them sign, solve an online mystery. Um, it's, it's online, it's automated, but you know, some, some of them call it a simulation, but actually it's like an online mystery story that they have to solve. It's a business Sounds like story. fun. <laughs> it is kind of fun. It's yeah. very, very hard, though. And we, we warn them ahead of time. This is not for the faint of heart. Um, and, and, you know, but, but some people, but I, I actually feel kind of good about it because when we've done it with some large companies, uh, we usually use a control group, which is some people lower down in the organization outside the C-suite. And we sometimes find some very gifted people who are in underrepresented groups who normally would not be promoted to high-level positions. And, um, you know, they are promoted as a result. Right. An extra win there. So so you, you have done a fair amount of this work in virtual worlds, um, and we see your avatar out there. Uh, and you kind of mentioned, you know, cost savings and safe failures as benefits to um, working in these virtual worlds. Can you talk to us a bit about some of the differences and, and the advantages of, of working in these virtual worlds to achieve the kind of NDM goals that we might otherwise try to achieve in the in the natural world, I guess? Well, you know, um, I, I, I saw this Nova show or this series on the brain. But the, the takeaway I got from that is we're always living in a simulation that we create in our heads. And if you spend a lot of time in virtual worlds, you really understand that. Um, that you're, that when you spend a lot of time in virtual worlds, it does feel like the real world. And if you, if you have a well designed virtual world and you put, uh, an E, an EEG cap on somebody while they're in a virtual world, 
their brain is behaving as if they're in a real world. If the world is not well designed, you don't get that pattern on the EEG. So that's kind of how you know it's a well-designed virtual world. Um, but the point is that lots of times you can symbolically solve a problem, but sometimes you can actually solve a problem with a virtual world. So in mining, for example, we say, let's not be theoretical about this. Let's build the mine. Let's go back to our human basics and let's actually see how people solve decisions in real life by making real life. So one of the things we started doing was we started making huge virtual worlds and having people log into them and see uh, how they make decisions and then uh, do some strategic rehearsals in them to see if we could change how they make decisions also. And we got very clever at uh, using our future view, uh, you know, behavior tracking and feedback technology to give them feedback on their decisions and to track how they made decisions. So imagine the profiler only its behavior. We actually have them do their work and track their behavior and see how they do it and then see how it changes when they get feedback on the consequences of their decisions. And we could have them experience the consequences of their decisions in compressed time in a real compelling visual 3D way, including in business the financial consequences. Like we have vertical integration from micro behaviors all the way up to a change in stock price. Um, but, the, but it turns out that we started doing that in 2007 um, and we use various gaming platforms, Olive, SAIC's, Second Life, OpenSim, um, MyCosm, etc. And of course, one by one, these companies either went out of business or were acquired or etc. And we were always hacking the code to, to attach our technologies to them. Then we said, why are we doing this to ourselves? Let's just make our own and it will do everything that we need it as MDM researchers to do. Well, that's what we did. So starting about 2000, I'd say 12, we started making our own virtual world with all the technologies attached to it that we've been using all along. Um, so now the, the virtual world part of it is in a way just a place of action but it's got all of our stuff as researchers that we need to happen attached to it. And it goes in two directions. We have the mega worlds, which are enormous, um, where we do uh, mining rehearsals, where we can go, you know, literally hundreds of square miles on the surface and two miles deep or even deeper. We just haven't had to go deeper than that yet. And then we have what are called micro worlds, which are just, you know, they're not that small, actually. They're several city blocks. You still have to spend a half hour to an hour walking around it to get to the edge of them. But um, those are more for training people in, um, you know, how to be better managers, how to launch a product, how to do effective teaming, etc. But... Um, 
those are very low cost, very uh, effective, and both of them are cloud-based and multiplayer and very stable so that anybody, you know, we're using those across, you know, five continents now where people can log in simultaneously and work together. Awesome. So now I'm imagining all these C-suite folks in this virtual world and how does that go? I mean, what, what, what sort of act, uh, response are you getting from them initially to just sort of get them in the world and getting them started? Well, the C-suite people are more interested in, um, you know, they're more interested mm -hmm. in what the world can do. So, for example, one of my um, newer customers is, um, like, let's take mining, for example. Typically, what you do to make money in a mine is you go find a huge mega deposit that you can mine for 50 years, and you get, you know, billions of dollars out of it. But you spend about 2 or $3 billion before you get anything out of it, just doing all the feasibility, taking the infrastructure. Mines are not like they used to be. They're not just holes in the ground. They're, they're more like reverse skyscrapers where you build quite a bit of infrastructure uh, before you even start getting any product from it. And a lot of it is automated by AI and so on. So um, uh, there's not a lot of workers underground anymore. So... Um, what they're realizing is two things. They can rehearse that in a virtual world first and have all the engineers and managers managing that. And even the management of the real mind can be in a virtual world because you can attach all of the monitoring technologies to the real mind and the virtual mind. Try things out in the virtual world first and then, um, you know, try them in the real mind next and have both metrics in the virtual world not even have a real not even have a real life controller for example have it be all virtual and then the other thing that's a completely new business model is taking a lot of little mines that are not even worth mining at all and treating them as one single mine which you can only do with a virtual world so in the virtual world they are one mine but in real life they're in 11 different places very cool. So you, you've already mentioned in terms of um, just getting back to sort of your pathway. So you've mentioned Sylvia Scribner. You've, you've talked about Gary a bit, but I'm wondering if you can also reflect on other folks who have kind of influenced your work um, inside and outside the NDM community. Well, obviously, I've done a lot of work with D. Andrews, uh, formerly at the Air Force Labs, but um, I still work with him. And um, I also, everybody's been influenced by Robert Hoffman. You know, I think uh, I want to give a lot of credit to Jim Spore. He's a scientist at IBM Labs who probably saw the value of what we do and introduced us or endorsed us with a lot of businesses. And, and then there's Lauren Resnick, University of Pittsburgh. And I still work with Alan Lesgold and Steve Reeder. We're writing a blog together. What a great, what a great group of folks that you've had to um, interact with over your career. Well, thank you, and of course, Laura. You know, <laughs> we always talk about you. So nice of you to say. I have this. I'm just going to share this funny memory. Back in at Klein Associates, we were organizing an NDM meeting, 
And someone, um, actually Buzz Reed, who was our president and CEO, recognized that our names rhymed. And he uh-huh. actually wrote a little po- poem rhyming Leah DiBello and Laura Melatello. Uh, so I've always felt very connected oh, to you wow. ever since then. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. So I was going to ask you kind of a fun question. So I'm going to ask you to imagine that you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM. On pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask? I guess I would ask them how they do knowledge elicitation. And what would you be listening for? Um, If they give them surveys or tests or if they really try to understand they do something that understand that gets at how people really think. Yeah, that's a, a a good indicator, I think, is how how people really study the world and the people in it. So, where, where's all this heading, Leah? Where, where are you going to take your research next? Well, uh, um, it's interesting that you ask this because I feel like I'm I'm chanting this lately. I I because of how I got, I wanted to get a lot of data. I ended up selling my soul to big business and I made a lot of rich people richer, but it is how I got to prove that what we do works. Um, and, uh, what I really wanted to do was crack the code of cognitive reorganization and really kind of understand the grammar of how, uh, you know, wh- how, what is it that happens when people shift levels? I'm still a genetic epistemologist at heart. Um, and I think I've done that. And I think that what we want to do now is make these micro worlds and we want to give them away. We want to scale and we want to make it available to everyone. We don't want to just help these senior managers become more successful. The problem has been that when you're, it's much easier to sell to a senior manager. The, um, you know, they have a problem. It, you know, people don't realize that, that somebody, in a senior role in a company is actually very vulnerable. If they don't move the needle on stock price, market cap, profits per employee, things like that, they're, they're basically toast. Um, and they come to us because they've heard that we've helped their friends or that we've helped another industry. And they say, I don't care how you do, how you do it. Can you do it for me? And um, we have, uh, you know, distribution partners all over the world and, this is how we get our customers. And they don't care how the sausage is made. They just want us to do it for them. When we go down lower in the organization to like the learning department or the training department, they want to know how it works and they want to know how it compares with other teaching methods. And we're like, oh man, we, we don't know how to sell to these people. Um, and it's, it, it's very difficult for us. And, um, you know, we uh, finally, a senior vice president of one of the biggest insurance firms in the country called me last week and said, I really need this because we're about to embark on a big merger and I need your micro worlds for two purposes for, for you know thousands of employees. I said, have you talked to your learning department or HR department about this yet? Because they have the ability to really gum up the works. They probably have picked something else already. They probably, you know, they can say, no, I've had this happen at IBM. I've had this happen at Merck. I've had this happen at huge companies. 
it, it, you know, you can say yes and you can fund anything for people at your level. But for the rank and file, they, they have no budget. They can't say yes, but they can say no. And they can throw up all sorts of regulatory, security, etc. you know, um, IRB, all kinds of things to get in your way. He said, no, I haven't talked to them. I, and, you know, can you talk to them? I said, no. They are your problem to solve. Solve that problem, and we will give you anything you want. And that's our constraint right now. Um, we are distributing the micro worlds in South America, and people love them. They actually find them ridiculous because they really want something that helps them adapt to a more complex world. And some of our stuff takes two hours to do, and people feel like they, you know, have really accelerated their skills in very basic areas like consultative selling, um, agile leadership, all kinds of stuff like that. And that's what I'd like to do. I'd like that to make make that available at a very low cost online to almost anybody. So Leah, one of the, that, that makes me think of something I have long admired, especially about some of your early work. So that work you did with Sylvia, um, with the dairy workers, um, people in NDM are used to studying high profile people, firefighters, um, military commanders. And so recognizing the kind of expertise um, that exists in all walks of life um, and, and, and kind of giving that the respect it deserves um, is really a cool thing about some of the places that you've worked. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, and I really believe it. I mean, it's not fake. I mean, I, when I worked in the air brake shop um, as a student, um, it was a very humbling experience. I, I feel like these people make the air brakes that keep us all safe, millions of people a day in New York City, and, um, you know, that's what, every time they touch these things, that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the, the safety of millions of people, and uh, they know that only they can do this. And, and they also know that I can't, and that I may never get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and they feel sorry for me. Um, but, <laughs> so, um, I think that that, uh, and Sylvia really did impart that, um, that we are all learners. All right. Last question is another fun one. Uh, and it should be especially fun with you. So we want you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie. And we're going to both try to guess the lie. So Laura and I are going to each guess what the lie might be. Okay. Um, I was trained to be an artist originally from a very early age as a child prodigy. I collect dolls and I have a huge interest in cooking. An interest in what was the last one? Cooking. Cooking. Hmm. All right, Brian, you should go first this time. I do not believe that you were, have an interest in collecting dolls. I'm going to guess that you do not have an interest in cooking. Laura's right. That's the last time. <laughs> I have not been successful at this game. Come on, Brian. Have you, have you ever looked at my avatar? I mean, think about it. The but how does that relate to, that. to dolls? You would have to understand and be interested in the human form. 
I mean, I don't collect Barbies. I collect, you know, collectible, like, carved wooden, one-of-a-kind things. So that means uh, you were a child prodigy artist. I was, yes. And what sorts of arts? Um, you know, I just was a really good at art. And, you know, I they hired a, a tutor for me when I was about six. And I was selling my artwork when I was still a single-digit child age. And, um, you know, I don't know why. Um, and uh, I just uh, was very visual, I guess. And I still am. I mean, I still think very visually. You know, I draw everything before I write it down. Awesome. Well, as usual, I have not guessed correctly, but uh, this was very insightful to you uh, and your work. And I think our audience is going to be really excited to hear this. So uh, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Well, thank you. This was really fun. And I hope I was helpful. It was uh, very entertaining and interesting. Uh, so on that note, uh, thanks again for joining us for the Indian Podcast. I'm Brian Moon. And I'm Laura Militello. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.